1: and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Thank you all for coming and welcome to the Heritage Foundation. I'll just ask you to briefly make sure that your cell phone is silenced and any pagers or other electronic devices you might have are also uh, in silence because you're going to want to give your full attention to today's speaker because we are uh, very fortunate to have Dr. Sam Gregg with us. He's just published a wonderful book, Reason, Faith, and the Struggle for Western Civilization. Uh, It covers all of the topics that your parents told you you weren't ever supposed to speak about in polite company. Uh, He hits on religion. He hits on politics. He hits on sex. It's all in this, in this book. Um, and he does it from a thoroughly intellectual, reasonable, uh, thoroughgoing uh, perspective. If you're not familiar with Dr. Gregg, he's the director of research at the Acton Institute, where he has been now for probably close to 20 years. Um, he pre- before that, he did, had um, done his uh, graduate studies at the University of Oxford. Uh, his DPhil is from Oxford, where he studied moral philosophy and political economy, studying with uh, John Finnis, among other uh, people. Um, one of my favorite of his previous books, uh, particularly relevant, I think, uh, for the Heritage Foundation, is Economic Thinking for the Theologically Minded, where he helps connect people, uh, their their good intentions with sound economic uh, reasoning, uh, something that frequently goes awry. And today he wants to show us how faith and reason go together and how things can go awry if you try to isolate them from each other. Uh, some people who seem to think like the Enlightenment is the only source of illumination into uh, the true, the good, and the beauty, beautiful. Other people who seem to think the Enlightenment is when everything went to hell in a handbasket. Uh, Sam rejects both of those uh, interpretations. He thinks there are things we can learn from the Enlightenment, but there are also deeper sources of wisdom that we should be appealing to. Uh, and so this afternoon, he's going to share some of those thoughts with us, uh, lecture a little bit of the book. Then we'll have time uh, for your questions. He might have time to give you some of his answers, and then we'll wrap it up at one with some sandwiches in the foyer. So please join me in welcoming Sam Greig.
0: Well, thank you, Ryan. I'm grateful to be here back at the Heritage Foundation. It's always a great pleasure to be here. It's even greater pleasure to be able to speak about my new book, Reason, Faith, and the Struggle for Western Civilization, published by the wonderful people at Regney. My publisher is sitting in the audience. So I'm glad to see him here. I've been pleasantly surprised by the attention the book has received, and that said, as a convinced free marketer on economic issues, I must mention that the book is available on amazon.com for the very reasonable price of $20. Now, as the book's rather broad title suggests, it's concerned with some broad themes, reason and faith, rationality and religion, and how the relationship between these two dimensions of knowledge have helped make the West different, to use Nile Ferguson's phrase, from the rest. But it's also about how disorders in this relationship have and continue to do, I think, enormous damage to Western culture. Now, the first thing I say in the book is that the topic has long occupied my mind, for about 13 years, actually, and over that period, Nothing has changed my view that the primary challenge facing what I and obviously many other people call the West is neither political nor economic. Economics and politics matter, but I've become even more convinced that the most important questions facing Western societies logically precede these subjects and in many respects predetermine how we address them in the first place. And the ways in which the relationship between reason and faith have shaped the West for better and for worse are, in many ways, I think, subterranean. Occasionally, however, they thrust themselves more into public view. Now, one such manifestation, of course, has been the religiously motivated violence. Western societies have confronted during the 21st century's first two decades. But the book also shows how the far greater bloodshed of the 20th century's darkest decades carried out at the behest of ideologies that hardly need to be named owe much to what I call, after Joseph Ratzinger, pathologies of reason and pathologies of faith. Now, fortunately, there's more to this story than the ways in which Western societies become unmoored whenever reason and faith start drifting away from one another. And one of my arguments is that not only can reason and faith correct each other's excesses, but they can also enhance each other's comprehension of the truth, thereby, I think, renewing Western civilization. Another theme of the book, which Ryan alluded to, and which I know is controversial for many people, is that the various movements of ideas and peoples that are often grouped together under that catch-all phrase, the Enlightenment, need not be perpetually at odds with what I call the two faiths of the West. Now, it's not a question of ignoring tensions. They abound, and I highlight many of the tensions throughout the book. But the ideas that began emerging towards the end of the 17th century are I would argue, inexplicable, without the deeper background of the Jewish and Christian cultures out of which the Enlightenment arose. Likewise, more than a few of the freedoms and achievements now embraced by believing Jews and Christians would, I think, have struggled to see the light of day without the efforts of some Enlightenment thinkers. Now, there are many books, parts of the book, I should say, that I could highlight to you today, but as our time is limited, I'm going to focus on just one of these themes, and that's the relationship between what I call the religious faiths of the West and that broad movement of ideas that shaped so much of the world that we live in today that we call the Enlightenment. So the title of my brief remarks this afternoon, to give you a sense of what I have in mind, is From Logos to Enlightenment and back again. So many, I think, of the ongoing tensions that permeate modern Western societies come back, I believe, to two things. The first is an uneasiness among many people of faith concerning the Enlightenment project. The second is skepticism about religion about many among many of those who regard themselves as the heirs of the Enlightenment. Let me give you an example. It's my view that Christianity has still not really yet come to grips with the full implications of the economic revolution launched by the Scottish Enlightenment's greatest and most enduring monument, which, of course, is Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations. Much contemporary Christian thought and many Christian leaders, for example, have tended to marginalize and sometimes just simply ignore many of Smith's key and, I think, empirically valid insights. Now, there are many reasons for this, but one, I think, is the fact that much of the Christian world is still, 300 years later, still struggling to deal with the ideas and consequences of the Enlightenment. Some people of faith, I'd submit, basically see the whole Enlightenment experience as something to be rejected, as being at the roots of some of the West's deepest problems. Other people of faith, by contrast, seem frankly subservient to anything or anyone who claims the mantle of being more modern or more enlightened. But that too, in its own way, I think, also betrays an inability to come to grips with the Enlightenment phenomena. On the other side of the ledger, many self-described modern people in the West plainly regard religion as obscurist, repressive, as something humanity will eventually liberate itself from. Religion is considered an avatar of a world in which things were simply accepted on the basis of authority, often coercive authority, and at odds with the natural and social sciences. Now, I think there are two difficulties characterizing all of these trends. The first, I think, is that it overestimates. It overestimates the break which the Enlightenment made with the pre-modern world. But second, it also embodies a major blind spot, which is just how seriously the faiths of the West have taken reason, the ways in which they liberated the pagan world from irrationality and superstition And how these two faiths gave impetus to the seriousness with which the West takes reason. Now, we all know that the rise of reason in the West is often associated with Greece and Rome. And to be sure, many of the roots of, for example, the natural sciences go back to figures like Plato. But one of the central contentions of my book is that the real revolution of reason does not begin with the Greeks. It begins with the Jewish people. In fact, I would say that without the Hebrew prophets, there is no Western civilization. When we read, for example, the Hebrew scriptures, it's very clear that on one level, the Israelites rejected pagan idolatry because the one God had commanded them not to worship other gods. But the Hebrews' hostility to idolatry also reflected their radically different conception of God and God's relationship to the material world. Before anyone else, the Jews came to the realization that the entities worshipped by Egyptians, Babylonians, Greeks, and Romans were not what these peoples proclaimed them to be. To ascribe divinity to physical elements, such as water, was literally nonsense for the Jews. So to this extent, Judaism's audacious confrontation of pagan mythology was a powerful affirmation of human rationality. Because when the Hebrew prophets rebuked pagan idolatry, they were doing something entirely rational. It's on these grounds that the book argues that the Jews' liberation of human reason from mythology and nature worship amounted to one of humanity's most powerful enlightenments. The Hebrew prophets were not philosophers, as the Greeks understood this term, but they did play a major role in opening the human mind to objective reality. So why does this matter? Well, it matters because one of the obstacles that inhibited the Greek mind's ability to make sense of reality were the pagan religions, which dominated the ancient world. All the pagan religions, without exception, promoted the idea that humans and the human world were ultimately at the mercy of some very unpleasant, deeply fickle, deities. Now that belief gave rise to an enormous intellectual problem. How could a universe of selfish, irrational deities be reconciled with some of the great insights into reality achieved by Greek philosophers? How could a world in which these restless gods were seen as projections and embodiments of nature, how could this be reconciled with Aristotle's assertion that humans can discern the laws of nature by studying physical phenomena or Archimedes' mathematics or with Plato's insistence that there must be some type of first cause, a rational creator from which everything else begins. Now, what changed this situation was, of course, Christianity. Christianity's belief that the God first revealed to the Jews was a God who loved humanity so much that he had entered directly into human history. This was a remarkably attractive alternative to the likes of Zeus and Venus. But there was something else that was underscored by the new religion. This something else, derived directly from Judaism, was that God had a rational and creative nature. You find this theme powerfully expressed in the opening words of the Gospel of John. Now, I'm sure some of you know that this took the first verse of Genesis, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and adapted it to in the beginning was the word. In Greek, in the beginning was the logos. So to Greeks, to Romans and diaspora Jews, audiences who were very familiar with the language and word logos These words made the point that the Christian God was not irrational. On the contrary, while he was love, he was also divine reason. He was Logos in all its fullness. This Logos had created the world, infused the world and human beings with order, and written the reasonability that's integral to Logos into the being, the human being made in God's image. Now, this faith proved to be very attractive to many Greeks and Romans, who were rightly proud of their intellectual and cultural accomplishments. In Christianity, they found a faith that respected many of their successors, but also reconciled them with the idea of a rational creator in ways that paganism never could. So Christianity's integration of what you might call the Greek Enlightenment into Judaism's unique religious achievement set the pagan religions that had blurred the horizons of the Greco-Roman world on the path to extinction. People started to see that religion was about the truth about reality and therefore ought to be compatible with reason. The result was a civilizational platform that Greek and Roman philosophers could not have constructed on their own. So it's this synthesis, this particular integration of reason and faith achieved by the religions of the West, which I argue is core to the identity of the West. It underlies the commitment to reasoned inquiry into truth, which is another of the central features of Western culture, It's also crucial to another characteristic Western theme, which is that of liberty, and not just liberty in the sense of an absence of unreasonable coercion, but also liberty in the sense of the self-mastery that occurs when humans freely choose virtue and flourishing over vice and decadence. The West's integration of reason and faith also helps to explain why universities arose in the medieval period, why we saw the natural sciences develop the way they did in the West, and why 13th century Christian theologians like Albertus Magnus underscored the importance of observation, of experimentation, and of what we call attention to data. This is why medieval Jewish scholars living in the West, such as Levi Ben Gerson, became mathematicians of such stature that Christian bishops would consult them about mathematical problems. The same concern for reason meant that the West was easily able to absorb advances in knowledge which began entering Europe from the Muslim world in the 10th century in areas ranging from mathematics to the science of optics. So I think it's in this light that we realize that the usual story that the Enlightenment, with its emphasis on reason, the scientific method, progress, improvement, liberty from superstition, etc., the idea that this marks a radical rupture from the pre-Enlightenment world starts to look like not a very plausible story at all. Take, for instance, the publication of Isaac Newton's Principia Mathematica, on the 5th of July, 1687. In many ways, this book proved decisive for the Western world. Stating basic hypotheses from which an astounding range of calculations could be developed, the Principia represented a revolution in the natural sciences. Nature's secrets, it seemed, had not only been unlocked, they had also become quantifiable. Now, Newton is, of course, widely regarded as the hero of Enlightenment. Rather less attention is paid to the fact that Newton was also a devout Christian, albeit somewhat of a heterodox one. One reason why Newton wrote the Principia was to refute what he regarded as the materialistic premises underlying Rene Descartes' theory of planetary movements. For Isaac Newton, God was more than just a clockmaker. Newton's God was a creator who had called the world into a being and was intimately involved in that same world all the time. Newton's creator was the God of the Hebrew and Christian scriptures and the pre-existent logos, the rational force within the universe. Impatient with those who mocked religion, Newton held that God had revealed in the scriptures much about himself and the world that humans would not otherwise know. Newton, it turns out, was as impressed by the learning of the Hebrew prophets as he was with Greek thinkers. There were, however, two critical differences introduced by the various Enlightenments. The first was an emphasis upon applying reason to man's habits customs, and traditions to assess whether these habits, customs, and traditions contributed to human well-being or whether they were actually masks for oppression. Nothing, Enlightenment thinkers believed, should be exempted from the application of critical reason, and that included religion. The second difference was the development of highly specialized ways of thinking. In the 18th century, very distinct branches of science started to be emerge and be studied that way. What had once been traditionally grouped together under natural philosophy was gradually separated into specialized disciplines like biology and zoology. We see similar developments with the emergence of the social sciences. Topics like politics, morality, and economics which had once been grouped together under the title of natural jurisprudence, these subjects started to be examined separately. Now, I think the benefits of that approach can be observed all around us today. Enlightenment thinkers working in the natural and social sciences spurred forward enormous advances in economic development, in our ability to cure diseases, to diminish poverty, to prolong human life, and to grow in our understanding and mastery of the natural world. It's also true that many Enlightenment thinkers and their ways of studying the world alerted more and more people to genuine injustices in the world. Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, for example, showed how the then dominant mercantile system wasn't just inefficient in creating wealth, he also highlighted how mercantilism involved widespread denial of economic freedom, fostered rampant corruption, and privileged those who possessed political power at everyone else's expense. Now, would insights like these, which have helped make the world more materially prosperous, economically freer, more creative, and physically healthier, would they have occurred without the type of thinking fostered by the Enlightenment? Well, we can never definitively answer that question, but I have my doubts. Are the economic and scientific achievements fostered by particular Enlightenment thinkers something that today's religious believers would want to do without? I don't think so. Would we not want to have the benefits of Smith's insights into economics, of Montesquieu's approach to politics, or of Locke's contributions to religious liberty? I don't think so. Now, the flip side to all these positive developments, however, is darker aspects of enlightenment thought. They include, I'd suggest, the growing absolutization of the scientific method, the tendency to limit rationality to the empirical, a collapse of the specialization of knowledge into a fragmentation of knowledge, the belief that human nature itself can be altered through science or the application of political power, the development of ideological projects by intellectuals who want to redesign society from the top down, and efforts to fill the void left by religion's marginalization with utopias, socialist utopias, Marxist utopias, fascist utopias, environmentalist utopias, and yes, even liberal utopias. Then there's the way in which the same trends have aided and abetted religion's relegation to the realm of preference, feelings, and subjectivity. One side effect of the scientific triumphs flowing from the Enlightenment was that some began treating the empirical sciences as the only form of true reason and the only way to really discern true knowledge. But if reason is reduced to the scientific, to the empirical, then reason's ability to contemplate religious questions, for example, is radically undermined. And when religion is relegated to the realm of subjectivity, of emotions, of feelings, it means that God's nature can no longer really be logos. And when that happens, we're left with one of two things. Either God is pure will, who we must obey blindly, even if he commands us to do terrible things, or God is a celestial teddy bear, a being who never warns us, never corrects us, never acts justly towards us, who does nothing but affirm us, no matter how irresponsible or stupid or evil our actions might be. Now, the things of which I'm speaking are not the stuff of everyday political discourse or debates about economic policy. They don't even feature significantly, I would say, in what passes for high-level cultural discussion today. Yet the stakes are very high for the West, because it's very clear that the integration of reason and faith, which is core to the West's identity, has, I would suggest, broken down, perhaps especially among intellectuals and the shapers of culture. And somehow that integration needs to be restored. But let's be clear, there's no going back to a pre-Enlightenment world. Yet at the same time, we need not settle for a civilization that marginalizes the faiths of the West in the name of reason and of science. So what do we do? How do we bring back the world of Smith, of Montesquieu, of the world of what was called the Republic of Letters, how do we bring this back into a constructive conversation with the world of the faiths of the West? Well, to my mind, there's two tasks that have to be accomplished. One is historical, and the second is more philosophical. And When I say historical, I mean we have to correct the historical record. We have to refute the myth that the various Enlightenments were uniformly hostile to religion, and that the faiths of the West were somehow opposed holus bolus to everything associated with the Enlightenments. Now, the good news is that there's already been much scholarly work done in this area. Over the past 90 years, a range of scholars have illustrated that, quote, only a small fraction of Enlightenment thinkers were anti-religious. The overwhelming majority were interested in finding a balanced relationship between reason and faith, end quote. Enlightenment thinkers remained intensely interested in religious questions and not necessarily From a hostile standpoint, even those who were working in as scientific a field as geology in the 18th century did not set out with the intention of trying to eliminate God from natural history. Instead, quote, they searched for the regular natural laws that God had set in motion at the beginning of time, end quote. So God continued to be understood as working directly in history, but also, as Isaac Newton said, in impersonal, secondary ways observable by human beings, much as Saint Paul had explained in his letter to the Romans. Now, when we come to specific religious traditions, the Catholic Church is often perceived as the Enlightenment's great opponent. Now, no doubt that was true in many cases. But plenty of 18th century believing Catholics, from laymen and laywomen to bishops, combined constructive reflection on Enlightenment ideas with loyalty to Rome. Many Catholics supported Enlightenment-inspired political and economic reforms without compromising their religious beliefs one iota. Openness to the new learning can be seen in the willingness of Catholic missionaries to promote practices such as vaccination. 18th century Jesuits even introduced the writings of decidedly non-Catholic thinkers like John Locke and Benjamin Franklin into Spanish colonial America alongside curricula that stressed the importance of the natural sciences. In North America, prominent Catholics like the Carroll family. Religiously devout, but also well-read in Enlightenment thought, supported the American Revolution and the subsequent experiment in Republican government. In Protestant Europe, openness to the new learning was perhaps even greater. The most famous example, of course, is the Scottish Enlightenment, a very large proportion of Scottish Enlightenment thinkers. Reverend Francis Hutchinson, Reverend William Robinson, Reverend Hugh Blair, Reverend Adam Ferguson, Reverend Thomas Reed, they combined Protestant Christian faith with a deep interest in Enlightenment approaches to subjects ranging from philosophy to history and economics. The same men insisted that the best of the new learning was compatible with Christianity. We also find considerable receptionists to Enlightenment ideas among 18th century European Jews who also did not think that this compromised their religious beliefs. As prominent in 18th century Jewish mind as Moses Mendelssohn regarded Enlightenment thought as crucial for, quote, putting key elements of Jewish metaphysics, such as God's existence, creation, and the immortality of the soul on a firm philosophical basis. Mendelssohn even credited Enlightenment thinkers like Locke and Leibniz with helping him to overcome religious doubts in his youth. He also regarded enlightenment emphases on God's goodness as one of God's preeminent attributes as a recovery of, quote, a fundamental insight that biblical and rabbinical Judaism first asserted against paganism. Now, I could go on and on. And I do go on and on in my book about this but I stress this historical side because I've always thought that you cannot have a clear debate about the present unless we have a clear understanding of the past. My second suggestion concerns the need for religious believers to insist that they take reason just as seriously if not more seriously than those who consider themselves contemporary representatives of enlightenment. And that above all concerns a renewed reflection upon God's nature. His nature is love as love, His nature is mercy, but maybe above all in our time, His nature as the logos. Now there is a risk, I will say, to re-emphasizing God's nature as logos, because there have been occasions in the past when Christians, for example, have drifted in the direction of hyper-rationalism. We saw this with some medieval scholastics. But hyper-rationalism is hardly the primary problem facing the religions of the West today. On the contrary, a very real problem facing the two faiths of the West is the rampant sentimentalism in which so many synagogues and churches in the West are presently drowning. When you separate faith from reason, many pathologies of faith and reason develop, and I examine many of these in my book. One such pathology is fideism, blind obedience, and deep suspicion of reason. But another is sentimentalism. Faith becomes seen as primarily about the realm of feelings, emotions, and even unreason. In this world, attention to logic, to coherence of thought, to evidence, to things as basic to human reasoning as the principle of non-contradiction are dismissed as, quote-unquote, rigidity of thought. Hence, we end up with absurdities, such as prominent clergy trying to tell us that two times two can sometimes equal five, or not. For who are we to assume that God will not portray his own nature as logos? Logos. Seen from this standpoint, the fideist and the sentimentalist certainly have one thing in common, and that is that neither regards God as having the character of logos. What's also clear is that the sentimentalism presently infecting wide swathes of Judaism and Christianity in the West is all about diminishing the gravity, the clarity, and the seriousness of religious faith. The God who's revealed fully in the Hebrew and Christian scriptures is certainly merciful, but he's also just, which means that he is reasonable and very clear in his expectations of us because he takes us seriously. Woe to us if we don't return the compliment. Now, a return to emphasizing God as divine reason isn't about us downgrading the importance of emotions like joy, anger, and fear. We are not robots. Feelings are central aspects to our nature, and they give us insights into reality. But human emotions do need to be integrated into a coherent account of faith, of reason, of human action, human choice, and human flourishing and then we need to live our lives accordingly. The return to Logos, however, isn't just about restoring inner coherence to the proclamation and practice of faith. It's also about helping the world bequeathed to the West by the Enlightenment to understand that human reason can't come from nowhere, that being can't come from nothingness, and that something can't come from a void. As the Nobel economist Vernon Smith observed in a 2016 lecture about religion and science, he said this quote, What is inescapable is the dependence of science on faith. End quote. And by faith, Vernon Smith had in mind St. Paul's definition quote, The substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. End quote just as the natural sciences that are so prized by the Enlightenment cannot arise from irrationality, nor can human reason arise out of nothingness. We may not yet see it face to face, but in the beginning there must have been the Logos. It's this commitment to full-bodied reason that includes but transcends the empirical which matters. But that commitment in turn depends on the recognition that if there is a God, and whether we call him first cause, Yahweh, Christos, Panocrator, divine providence, or supreme being, he must be the Logos. The Logos whose rationality and liberty is reflected in our reason and our ability to choose freely to know and live in truth. And without this commitment to Logos, I'm afraid, the West is lost. But I do not believe that decline is inevitable. I say again, there is nothing inevitable about the fate of the West. Why? Because the free choice for Logos and thus for reason and faith is never beyond us. The desire for truth, for liberty, and for justice is simply part of who we are. To give rational form to these human loggings is thus to act in a way which is truly enlightening, fully consistent with the faiths of the West, and to build a future for the West that's firmly grounded on the sure knowledge that it is the truth that ultimately sets us free. Thank you. And now, I believe we have time for questions. We have a question down here.
2: Um, I want to thank you very much. Um, I recently went to um, a lecture by a person who is a physicist at University of Chicago uh, in his late 40s, um, particle physics, string theory. He converted to Orthodox Judaism within the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. Um, What he's saying, which is kind of interesting, um, the call mark of Orthodox Judaism, the last word in it is one. And it doesn't necessarily mean one God, it means the oneness of the universe. What this fellow was saying to us, that there is now a connection in particle physics, in string theory, in terms of the understanding of that very ancient concept Mm -hmm. of the oneness of the universe, and that he as a physicist, and many physicists who are not more archaic, like my brother-in-law, Um, who are very angry with some of the stuff coming out of physics, um, is connecting his new faith in Orthodox Judaism. I don't know if you... Sure,
0: I mean, I think um, quantum physics is showing many of the same types of things as well, that the study of matter is showing us more and more that it's not chaotic, that uh, the notion that things are just created by atoms randomly bumping into each other that order somehow arises from that is just so implausible more and more implausible and more and more more and more uh, people working in the natural sciences are prepared to say this out loud now once upon a time it was much harder to, to say that because you were often accused of imposing religion upon the experimental method and the natural sciences but what we're seeing, I think, in many fields of the of the natural science is more and more confirmation that uh, that it is all connected, that there is rationality to be seen in the universe, not just in human beings, but in the world around us, that there is order, that it can be perceived. And that even the very motivation for doing the scientific project in the first place, it's not just because you know, we just want to happen to know things, it's because we're concerned about truth. That's why we do science, that's why we do these things. And when you proceed from that basis, I think it, it becomes much more plausible to start to see some of the some of the things that you mentioned and some of the other things that I talk about some of this in my book about how more and more scientists are willing to say that, yes, the argument for a first cause makes so much more sense than aliens coming down and dropping seeds on the earth, as one prominent atheist has argued. So um, it's funny that so it's, it's interesting that the, the physical sciences which have traditionally been seen as the realm of enlightenment, a rational inquiry, and this is all free of superstition, is actually pointing us in the direction of some of these very ancient truths, which, as I, I stress in my book, were first discerned by the Jewish people so 500 years before Plato and Aristotle arrived at conclusions which are similar. But even then, in their, in their cases, I would argue, are still not as solid and as clear and as rational as what you find in um, Isaiah, for example. Um, Our education system teaches total total evolution in Darwin's theories. Mm -hmm. And that's what our kids are hearing from the time they're in kindergarten through college. Okay. There is no God, and we had a big bang and all that. How do we uh, change that? Well, a good thing would be to read Darwin's autobiography, because, um, which was not published until after his death because he said some things that would, have, I think, upset some of the members of his family and would have upset other people as well. But one of the things he basically says uh, is that he comes, quote-unquote, reluctantly to the conclusion... That there must be a type of supreme intelligence. He says it; it's there in his autobiography. Now he also says that as time goes on, his his the firmness of his conviction about that has weakened over time. But he still couldn't come up with any other explanation. Ultimately, is something that was that made the most sense. Then something like a type of first cause argument, that there must be, I think the phrase he uses, some type of intelligence analogous to that of human intelligence. Now that sounds somewhat like um, how, for example, many medieval thinkers would have conceptualized the relationship between the divine mind and the human mind. So that's one thing. Um, The second thing is, the second more negative thing, is that it's very clear that Darwin was looking for materialist explanations of everything. So he wasn't when he when he went into this, this mode of inquiry, he wasn't acting out of sort of disinterested, I'm interested in truth. He was desperately trying to prove that there is no God, that everything just evolves spontaneously out of nothing. Uh, and if and the person who did the most work on this was a um now deceased priest, theologian, and physicist named Stanley Yaki. I suspect some people in here would know that name. And he came to that conclusion a long time ago, that Darwin, whatever you think of the merits of Darwinism as an explanation of different things, what you can't say is that Darwin was going into this with a type of a scientist who's just purely interested in truth. He had an agenda. It's very, very clear. The third thing is that, um, again, whatever you think about the merits of of, Darwinism, Darwinistic theories of evolution. There's lots and lots of scientists now who are pointing out clear problems with that argument. And of course, that requires a certain degree of courage, Because of course, to question anything about Darwinism makes you an obscurist, and you're probably religious and a bad person. But there's more and more scientists who are saying, no, this notion of things just emerging just purely as a way of reacting to things that are going around them it uh, doesn't make sense based on the evidence that we're seeing in realms ranging from biology to physics so
3: hi all glory to god i'm a missionary Ooh. and um my undergrad graduate degree was in mathematics and science and i was a math teacher at first, and I received a call to ministry, and I uh, finished, excuse me, at Howard University as a uh, Masters of Religion uh, student as well, and um, I am the IP owner, the copyright author of Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter, and Blue Lives Matter. It is my sermon. And what most people don't realize is that um, the Heritage Foundation and what we're doing here today is very important. All Lives Matter is actually the all set in mathematics. It represents that all are included and no one is left out. And that's how the subsets, Black Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter, and the others were created. Of course, uh, media and others attempted to hijack that work. And so what I'd like to do is applaud us using faith and reason to apply to social justice situations in the earth and all other problem solving that we would like to do to call upon God in prayer and to uh, have a quiet, I, I say a quiet peace place where we can hear reason and reasonable solutions and share them. And I believe that this is a very important moment that we're having now, and I appreciate all that you've said. I will have other questions later, but I just want to say thank you to the Heritage Foundation and uh, what we are doing here today. This has to occur more often, and I know the president uh, made a speech yesterday uh, concerning what we're doing here today, and as much as we possibly can. Um, I believe we should move this forward and this should be the agenda that uh, circulates with my work, All Lives Matter and Black Lives Matter. It is not a liberal agenda and I do not even believe in a liberal agenda. So I just want that to be stated as well.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Are there any other questions or comments? I did have one thing I wanted to say that was related to that. One of the things that um, what are the characteristic language, words that the men of reason as they describe themselves and might even think is used was they, they heavily emphasized words like progress and improvement. And they were very convinced that you could make life in this world better. But one of the things which I think is often forgotten about that is that that in itself I think reflects a distinctive dimension of Jewish and Christian faith, which is that you are actually supposed to transform the world, and this is another area in which I think the this gap between the faiths of the West and enlightenment thinking I think has been is is deeply unnecessary in many respects. Yes I think they're waiting for a microphone.
4: Uh, you've raised certainly a, a fundamental question, uh, the question at which which but then leads to how do we deal with uh, those who are let's say on the extremists on the other mm-hmm. side? Uh, you mentioned the is- Islam, the world of Islam being a world of faith with no reason, and China has. Never had a faith in the sense Confucius was a realist, consultant to emperors on how to run the world better. Uh, he was there was there's never been any kind of as I understand it generalities are all false, but there's in China there's without reason without uh, if they're going to be all reason, how do we, what does that say for our relations mm-hmm. with these two extreme parts of the world we have them i guess within individuals also but also a global problem
0: well i do actually in the book i have a one section i do talk about the problem of fideism in contemporary sunai islam i spend quite a bit of time talking about that and i also trace the history of how some of these ideas first emerge and in the islamic world there was basically a struggle between the 8th century and the 12th century, between those who were arguing for a type of, actually a sort of almost a type of hyper-rationality, and on the other hand, there were those who were saying, who were very suspicious of philosophy, very suspicious of reason, and to the extent that they used reason, they were interested in reason that they thought was useful, things like building fortresses or roads and things like that. Well, the latter won the argument. The latter won the argument. And that's why, one of the reasons why we are facing significant problems in the Islamic world today. The theology actually matters. And this is the thing I, I'm, always, I'm, I'm always frustrated when I hear people say, well, if only, we just gave, only there was just economic development and all these wonderful things in the Islamic world, then everything would change. No. no the, what, fun, what is fundamental is the conception of God that is at present – dominant in most of Sunni Islam, because that has implications for how you think about reason, how you think about how you deal with other religions, how you deal with the relationship between politics. All these things are very, very important, and they're not solved by economic progress. Economic progress is wonderful. It's great. I'm a great advocate of free markets. But that's not going to solve the problem of fundamentalism. It just doesn't. I mean, a few years ago, I think, during the Obama administration, there was a whole conference on terrorism, and they didn't once talk about the theological dimension to it. So why am I saying this? I'm saying this because uh, in terms of the type of fideism that we see in much of uh, the Islamic world today, uh, I hope, in fact, I know there are some Islamic scholars who are working on trying to revive the alternative tradition that lost the argument by about the 12th century and I, I wish them all the best because I think that's a very important discussion that they need to have and by the way they're the only ones that can do it. We can't do it for them. You can't do this from the outside. I'm always very suspicious of people. I'll let. We'll just fix the problem. No. It has to be dealt with from within. They're the only ones that can do it and it doesn't help that some of the people who are... Uh, <laughs> Who are often asked to talk about Islam from a from within, so to speak, in the West are often atheists. This doesn't help the discussion. So there's a small number of people. Um, my friend Mustafa Akoyel is one person who's trying to work on this particular problem. And he himself will tell you it's an enormous difficulty because you're basically facing the fact that this is the established orthodoxy in Islam, Sunni Islam at the moment for how you understand God. And challenging, let alone critiquing that, is going to be very hard. But he's doing it. So I'm very supportive of what he's doing and it's necessary work. Um, in terms of, the, of a country like China, well, what's interesting about that is the growth of religion in China over the past, well, 150 years... Uh, and it's mainly of the evangelical Christian variety. It's also interesting that where that has occurred has generally been in the parts of the country that have been more open more opened up to economic development than other parts of China. So I think there's a correlation there because when you give people a certain degree of economic freedom, they start to become more prosperous. They have time to start thinking about, well, what's the ultimate meaning of all this? They're not constantly having to battle for survival every single day. So I think you see in China a revival, well, a growth of religiosity among significant segments of the population, which the regime is doing its very best to keep under control, if not crush, right now. And it's not clear to me that, in some cases, some people in the West, some religious leaders in the West understand this at all. So. Um, what does this mean for a country like China? I think it means that there's going to be a struggle there for quite a long time between those people who are, have found faith. Uh, as I said, it's mostly of the Protestant evangelical kind in, in um, mainland China and a regime that is going to do its very best to keep control for as long as it can. We have two minutes. One more question. Sir. Sir. Thanks. Um, you unpack a lot in that short period of time. Um, real fast, your last comment seemed to contradict what you said before, and that is exactly. well, the one you just said. You said, well, in China, if, if economic prosperity gives you more time. Oh, oh okay. So, so if you wanted to comment on that, because that's what we're trying to do in the Middle East. But, sure. but my comp- question was to you, you, I lost you a while ago when you talked about extreme rationalism. Um, can that lead to a finding of God, or does that lead to – um nihilism and and loss of it mm-hmm. well the, just to clarify when i was talking about the opening up of the economy that has encouraged religiosity what i'm the, the point i was making before is that economic prosperity is not going to develop is not going to change people's understanding of who god is that's two different separate things hyper rationality um, you saw some of this emerge in the Christian world in the late medieval period, where you would have literally medieval scholars saying things like, you don't need to read the Bible because we've worked out God. God is a perfect syllogism. We've worked it all out. And so this is what um, many of the Protestant reformers, by the way, were reacting against. That you, okay, well, you basically seem to have reduced religion to a type of Thomistic syllogism. So... So why do we why do we need to we, surely we should be reading the Bible as well? And you had some of these people saying, "No, that's that's not so important." There were Catholic scholars, by the way, who reacted against that as well. People like John Fisher and Thomas More were equally critical of this particular type of rationalism. And why is it problematic? It's problematic because I think it 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 tries to box God into the types of rational hypotheses, the type of philosophical reasoning that can lead us to a high degree of understanding of the nature of God and how God relates to human beings. But the notion that philosophy can completely comprehend the mind of God, I think, is deeply problematic. It's like I often say, there's, um, there are truths that are only known by faith. Something like the Trinity would be an example. There are truths that are known by Reason and faith, and then there are truths that are primarily the role of reason, like the natural and social sciences. Sorting out all those things, I think, is very important, is if one is going to have a serious conversation about God's nature, how that is reflected in human beings, and what that has, how that has implications for human society. So I think it's one o'clock. We're out of time. So thank you very much. I'm very glad to be here.